turn this just a little bit. If I may just uh, do a little bit of housekeeping before we get started this morning. Um, I decided last week that I wanted to make a, an announcement before the message, and this doesn't really have any, anything pertaining to you all here. Um, but I know that we have a number of people who are watching online, and so I want to address them very quickly, if I may. Uh, if for those of you who, are, who do watch online, we, uh, we certainly welcome you every Sunday to uh, Redeeming Grace Baptist Church. Um, but I just wanted to make sure and put this out there, that we would encourage you all to make sure that you are not thinking that church is something we can do not being in a corporate setting. Uh, again, we're not saying not to watch. We're just saying that we encourage you to make sure that you are min being ministered to in a corporate location of a corporate body that is a church. Uh, we think that's a very important uh, biblical construct. We understand that during the, the um, crisis that was going on last year and the beginning of this year that there was uh, a lot of concern and a lot of people made decisions. I'm not saying they were right or wrong decisions. I'm not making any declaration on that at all. I'm just saying that I understand that many people did take uh, throughout our world, um, take and make decisions, some based upon what had been declared to them. Other people made the decisions based upon their own personal thoughts. But either way, I want to encourage you as soon as you possibly can uh, that you do begin to join once again uh, with a corporate body and worship corporately. Uh, if you're enjoying the studies that we have here at Redeeming Grace Baptist Church and you're not from the area because I know we have people watching from even other countries, um, we want to encourage you that you can watch them at any time. They're available throughout the week. They're not just there at the moment live. They are recorded and are available all the time. Uh, they will not be removed unless someone outside of us removes them. But that's a whole other issue, right? Um, in any case, we want to invite you to consider, and we would like to see you if you're local and you're able to come and fellowship with us. Uh, we think that that is God's plan, that we do connect corporately with other people that are of like faith in a corporate worship setting. And uh, we think that we need to be careful that we are after that. So I just want to put that out there, and we'll be mentioning that every week. Uh, as we go from here on out in a variety of ways. This morning, we are in chapter 5 of Matthew, continuing our study in the Sermon on the Mount. We are on verses 31 and 32, and I want to do some, a little bit of housekeeping, a little bit of connecting the dots so that we can understand where we're going with this text. Uh, first, a, gener a, a, gener uh, a general housekeeping statement. Um, before we get into some specific housekeeping statements with regard to the text. I do want you to understand, as we've said this before, but I want to clarify even more so because I've had further questions. I do want us all to understand as we're looking our way and working our way through Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, that what we have here is Jesus' first and probably most major message that he preaches, at least in the recording of his messages, of all of his messages, is probably the most complete record of a message. And uh, it is, seems to be one of, if not the very first major message that is recorded. Uh, and we've labeled it the Sermon on the Mount, and it has a number of other um, uh, terms that have been applied to it. The Sermon on the Mount, called the Sermon on the Mount because they're on a mountain outside in the north of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus is, for the most part, although not completely, for the most part, he is commenting, or a better term probably is to use the term, he's commentating on the Old Testament law. 
And it is important that we understand that. And in the, with the idea that he's commentating or preaching a divine and inspired commentary, probably the best way to put it, on the Old Testament law, it is important that we recognize that as a divine and inspired commentary on the Old Testament law, it is accurate, it is right, it is applicable, it is correct in every way what he has to say. Uh, so that's very important that we have that. Uh, some have taken what I'm saying uh, to mean that, that, that the statements he makes about the law are irrelevant. That's not at all what I'm trying to say. Not even close. But what I'm trying to say is, and this is where we get a little tighter, and that is we need to always wrestle with, in every text, we need to wrestle with, with not just what do the words and phrases and sentences and paragraphs mean, but we need to wrestle with something even more important than that. And that is, what is the intent? What's the purpose? Too often we wrestle with the words and the, and the phrases and the sentences and the paragraphs and even the, the chapter and sometimes even the whole book. But we don't wrestle with what the purpose is for why those words and sentences and phrases and paragraphs and chapters are there and why the whole book is there. Intent is important. In fact, I would argue intent is absolutely crucial because if we don't get the intent, we go off the rails very, very quickly oftentimes. And so it's really important that we wrestle with it and we must always look at a text in light of the intent of the text, not just what the words mean. If I may just give you a quick example of this. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time. We only have two verses to cover this morning and I'll probably be relatively brief on the text itself for reasons I'll explain in just a second. But a classic example of that, I would argue, is, for example, Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1 starts out with saying, Blessed is the man who does not, what? Walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scoffers. Now we can wrestle with those words, we can sort out all those words, right? And we can sort out the sentence, and we can, set out, we can sort out the phrases, and we come up with meaning, and it could be legitimate, accurate meaning, correct? And we go on to verse 2, and we see verse 2 says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of waters who bears its fruit in its season, and its, his leaf does not wither, but in whatever he does, he prospers. But the chaff are not so, right? But they are like the what's that? The wicked are like the chaff that the wind drives away. The wicked will not stand in judgment, right? But God knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the sinners will perish. Now we can work through all those words and all those phrases and all those sentences and put it all together in, in this chapter and get meaning in, from that chapter and be completely wrong. Which, by the way, I know Christian, you and I have talked about this passage recently is what typically happens with the text. Is we look at it and we say, well, don't be like 
verse 1, be like verse 2. That's what we do, right? And we get the meaning of the words, phrases, and sentences in the whole chapter. We get it. We don't want to be like chaff, right? Because what happens to chaff? They don't stand the judgment. They get driven away by the wind, right? We want to be like the righteous, correct? That's planted by the rivers of water, right? I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? That's not what it's talking about. The psalm is talking about Jesus. As the only righteous one. <laughs> they left to our own devices. All of us are chaff. Every last one of us. You see, intent is important. And what happens if you get the wrong intent of the passage? Purpose, another word for it. What happens if you get the wrong, just sticking with Psalm chapter 1, what happens if you get the wrong intent or the wrong purpose of the passage? You end up with pursuing moralisms and just trying to ultimately, now we'd never use these terms, but you end up just trying to save yourself. Instead of recognizing, as Paul did in Philippians chapter 3, my only hope is to have a righteousness that's not my own. Because my righteousness is nothing more than chaff. Correct? And all, that's all it'll ever be. I need a righteousness that's perfect because God's standards are absolutely perfect. Because so I need His righteousness. That's where Paul came to. And that's exactly what, what David is coming to in Psalm chapter 1. It's important that we see that. We'll see that all over the place. Intent is really absolutely essential just because we've, we've figured out what the words mean and, and the phrases and the sentences. It doesn't get us there. We've got to understand why it's given and what the intent and the purpose and the goal. And the Scriptures, in, in such a blessed way, gives us so often the keys to unlock the, not just what the words and phrases and sentences mean, but what the intent of it is, what the goal of it is. But too often what we do, especially, and I, say, I hate to say this, but too often what pastors do and too often what, what even Bible teachers do and theologians do is they, they, they look at the words and if they're skilled with the Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic, they'll look in the Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic dictionaries and they'll, learn, and they'll discover what the words mean and they'll try to put the words together into, into coherent understandings, but the, at the end of the day, we don't, Discover the intent. And that's a scary place to be. Because just as we know, if you and I are talking together and we're just having a conversation, if I go over, Ken, to your, to your shop tomorrow and, we, and I interrupt your work and we start talking, I'm there for a purpose, right? Maybe a good purpose or a bad purpose, but I'm there for a purpose. And I'm talking to you about something and I'm using words but you know that in the communication there's intent, right? I'm just not saying words that are somehow connected to each other that say something. But there's intent behind it. There's a target. There's a goal. And we know that, don't we? Let me just use an example. Sarcasm. Do you think when you use sarcastic phrases and sentences, do you think the, the, there's a, some sort of literal purpose in there? Not even close, right? There's an intent behind the sarcasm. Does that make sense? There's a, there's a purpose that the words don't fully contain, do they? 
And it's, it's, it's incumbent on the hearer to do what? To what? To detect it. And to what? To interpret it. Right? Not just the words. Because if you just take the words, you're going to get something totally different, aren't you? Than what was intended. Or to use a different illustration. Have you ever had somebody say something to you that you were convinced was sarcastic, but it wasn't? And you ended up in a, way, in a place that they didn't intend for the conversation to go? I mean, that's happened to us all the time, doesn't it? And it doesn't just happen with, our, with sarcasm, does it? It happens with everything. It's the way of communication. It's, it's, it's the challenge of communication. It's not just the words and the sentences or the phrases and the, and, and the paragraphs. It's the intent of them. We must always be after intent. And that's what we've been wrestling with here in, in uh, Matthew chapter 5. Now, I say that to say that we have these two verses here that have been studied, argued about, fought over for centuries, and I would argue even millennia. Not just these two verses, 31 and 32, about divorce, and remarriage, but also you could throw in along with this passage, you could throw in Matthew 19, you could throw in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you could throw in uh, the statements in Malachi chapter 3, uh, the statements in the law itself, Deuteronomy 24 and uh, 9, I think it is, and many other places that God talks about divorce. And, and, and for, for over a millennia, People, theologians, pastors have wrestled with these texts. What is going on? What is God trying to communicate? Very important question to ask. But intent is everything, isn't it? Goal, purpose, intent is everything in understanding the text. Now, I would present to you that what we're going to discover this morning with regard to goal and intent and purpose in this text is going to be a little bit different from what we typically do with the text. So let me just tell you, before we get started, we're not really going to talk a whole lot about, about the nuts and bolts of the text. As in, you know, well, when is divorce allowed? When is divorce not allowed? When is remarriage allowed? When is, not, when is remarriage not allowed? We're not going to talk about that. Because I really don't think that's the point. That being said, we have a divine commentary that God is giving. We need to pay attention to that as well, correct? We have a divine commentary, but when we think about intent... I would argue we find the intent of the text all the way back where we've been going every week, which is where? Chapter 4, verse 17. Chapter 4, verse 17 is the key that unlocks the entire sermon. And in that text it says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now we've gone back to this every week. And we're going to continue to go back through this until we get through the text. Remembering that this divine and inspired commentary is important. We've got to fold into the discussion the intent. The intent is to teach about divorce? No. That's the tool, right? You could say that's in this short passage, that's the, that's the engine and the cars and even the rails that is the train, but the intent is to get somewhere, right? The intent is not, is not the train and the track. The intent is to get somewhere. And the place that Jesus is trying to get to is this call to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so what Jesus is doing in these chapters as he presents 
these uh, various points that are for the most part connected to the law, not completely, but for the most part connected to the law, he's trying to present using the train that is the law, he's trying to present a very, very important point. And the very, very important point is not this is what you need to do or how you need to live, although that may very well be true. Right? Elsewhere, the Scriptures tell us very clearly these are the ways we should live. But the point of the text is that Jesus, what He's doing is He's showing them that they need to do what? Repent. As we talked about every step of the way, I just want to remind you real briefly, in that day, if they would have heard Jesus start to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, we know that the kingdom of heaven is at hand is He's referring to Himself and all that He is instituting. If He calls them to repent, the natural response would be, if I, the same as if I came to you and said, repent, you would respond very straightforward in your mind or with words to say what? From what? That's the most natural and only response anyone would have is from what? The Sermon on the Mount is, is, is explaining from what? That's the point. You ask the question, from what? I'm going to preach a three-chapter message, Jesus is saying, to tell you what you need to repent from. And his point is to show that everyone needs to repent in every way. Every single person, every single hearer needs to repent in every way. Because what he is presenting in choosing some of the law, because he can't actively commentate on all of the laws in a message, right? They'd be there for months, years. So he's choosing a few as illustrations to them to say, this is just illustrations of every aspect of the law that you've missed. Every single aspect that you have failed with. Now, Getting more specific, as we get closer to chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, I made, I made a misstatement last week, and I want to clarify it. I said, when, I, when we were in 27 through uh, 30 last week, I said this is a, uh, a one of two parts. And actually, I, that was a misstatement. It's one of three parts. And I want to point that out to you today. It's one of three parts. And here's what it is. Part number one in this three-part mini-series within the message called the Sermon on the Mount. Part 1 is 27 through 31 that we looked at last week about lust, and we're going to reference it this week. Most commentators isolate 27 through, 31, through 30 from 31 and 32. Some do not. Most isolate them and keep them all isolated as they keep each one of these sections isolated. Most commentators isolate 30, uh, 27 through 30 from 31 and 32. Some combine them together. I said last week, they ought to be together. They go hand in glove. You cannot get understanding of 31 and 32 without 27 through 30. You can't do it. It, does, it will not work. We've got to bring it together. But the part three, which Lord willing we will get to next week, is 33 through 37. Now, most of your text will have an uninspired heading called oaths or something along those lines. But I want you to understand what he's talking about is covenant oaths. 
Now, if we put the word covenant before the word oath in the non-inspired heading, suddenly it makes sense why it's all connected, doesn't it? The greatest covenant that a man can make with another person is marriage. So it's clearly there's a connection between all three of these. But there's other clues. You'll see when you get to end of chapter 5, verse 30, and it jumps into verse 31, it says something different than it said up before. You notice beginning in verse 27, it says, you have heard that it was said. Verse 31, it was also said. Get the connection? And then you get to verse 33, it says, again you've heard that it was said. You hear a connection? You see, they're all connected. I think it's important we see the connection. They will flow one to the other to the next. These three, now, you could, it's like the, the three are really one point, in other words, out of this long message. The three are one point. We're breaking his point down to three subpoints. You follow me so far? We're looking at the second of the three subpoints this morning. And that second of three subpoints says this, verse 31 and 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality commit, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. That's our text for this morning. Again, I'm not going to, going to this morning wade into the discussion of when is it appropriate to, uh, uh, to allow divorce and when isn't it? Is it ever? Is it not? I'm not going to wade too far into that because I think there's something more important to say in the text. I think it's important to discuss that, but I think in this text at this point, because of what I think the intent is, is that we see it in light of its context and see it in light of the intent of the storyline. But there's a couple things I want to point out to you to help you think through some things, um, to help us package a few things uh, without distraction. Verse 32, I'm going to go to first. <clears throat> and the point I'm going to, I, I want to address just for, again, housekeeping so we understand what we're talking about is the end of the text. And then we're going to get into what I really want to say about the text. Verse 32 again, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality, and this is the part I want to just briefly talk about, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. I, want to, I just want to address that last uh, phrase, two phrases briefly and then get into what I think is the real intent of the text. That, not that this is outside the intent, but I just wanted to clarify it a little bit so we're not distracted. It's kind of weird the way he says it here initially when you look at it. Because it says, makes her commit adultery. That doesn't make much sense today in our thinking. How does, if someone get divorced, how does it make that person commit adultery? In our way of thinking, that just, if someone, if person A marries person B, Person A is, is male, person B female. Person A marries person B, and later on person A decides they don't want to be married to person B, and they divorce person B. How does that make her commit adultery? It doesn't make any sense in our way of thinking today. But if you go back to that day, okay, if, you, if we could somehow teleport ourselves back to that day when Jesus is speaking and before, we live in a modern phenomenon time. But back in that day, up until the modern era actually, 
if you were divorced in a very real way, you were, what do you think? Yeah, you were, you were, you were kind of shunned. You were kind of looked down upon. And, you, and, and it became especially important because as a woman, because it says, it says, makes her feminine, her commit adultery. If you are a divorced woman in that day and before and afterwards up until almost the modern era, if you were divorced, if the husband divorced you, in other words, you're in a situation where you have no ability to provide for yourself for all intents and purposes. You are worse off than a single female. Because a single female wasn't looked down upon, wasn't shunned. But a divorced female was shunned. It was hard enough for a single female. It was nigh unto impossible for a single female to make it. But for a divorced female to survive in that culture was nigh unto impossible. And so if you were a female in that culture and you got your, your, your husband divorced you, you really only had one alternative. And the alternative would be what? To get remarried or become a prostitute. Those were kind of your options. And so most women would choose to remarry. But in their remarrying, they would end up most times violating the law, the Old Testament law. And so they'd be in a position of an adulteress or being committing adultery according to the Old Testament law. And so because of the dramatic ramifications, Jesus says the idea here is you make her, or, or yeah, you make her commit adultery. It's a stunning statement, but we need to understand it in its context, what was going on in that day what life was like in that day. The options were slim at best. And then the last statement, whoever marries a, a divorced woman commits adultery um, is, is getting into a, a subject I don't want to get too deeply in, but it, it, it gets into the whole discussion of what were the schools of thought we'll talk about in a little bit. So I'm going to ask that we hold off on that one for right now. But there are two major schools of thought with regard to divorce and remarriage. We are going to address that, but you can just hold off on that for right now. So let's get into the text itself. Verse, let me read it again. It was also said, verse 31, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone that divorces his wife except on the grounds of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. He starts out the text in verse 31 by saying, it was also said. That also is connecting it back to the previous text. But what he's referencing, it was also said, is that idea that this is in the law, right? It's in Deuteronomy. That's what he's referencing when he talks about something being said. However, this is the first time in the Sermon on the Mount, and it's one of the only times in the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus will not reference the Ten Commandments. He referenced the Ten Commandments in the previous section. But in this section, he's not referencing the, the Ten Commandments. He's referencing Deuteronomy chapter 24. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. It is part of the greater law, but it was not part of the Ten Commandments. It's more of a, if you could describe, if you could break out the, the law 
in a variety of sections between civil law, moral law, there's a, uh, ceremonial law, there's a variety of categories in the law in the Old Testament. This would fall under the civil law category. The statement Jesus is referencing is about giving a certificate. What's that all about? The idea is, if you married someone, you can't one day just get up and say, I'm divorced from you, and you go. And throw them out of the house. The point is, in Deuteronomy 24, God said, if someone's going to divorce their wife, they need to give them a certificate so that it shows that they're actually divorced. This cannot just be a word from the husband, which was happening. It cannot just be a word from the husband saying, get out of my house, I divorce you. And then it's her word against his type of thing. Get the idea, if, if it's his word against hers, then he can do what at any time? He can change his mind. He can lie. And he continues to maintain absolute control over that woman forever, doesn't he? And the woman is destroyed, especially if he's vengeful. And so God establishes in Deuteronomy 24, because of sin, he establishes, and it really is important we understand this, it's because of sin he establishes this idea of a certificate. As a matter of fact, in Matthew 19, Jesus even references that. And he says in Matthew 19, the reason why God gave you that law about a certificate for divorce was because of your unbelief. Because of your rebellion. Because of your disobedience to the law. That's why the whole certificate thing was established. So he says in verse 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. And it's true. Deuteronomy 24. But then, as he's done every step of the way, what does Jesus do? In verse 32, he starts it off with one word he uses over and over again, doesn't he? But. Now he's going to commentate. See, that but tells us the commentary is coming. And when he brings the commentary, he's going to clarify. And he's going to clarify dramatically, powerfully, and destructively. Now it's important we get that. Because what he's about to say is not the way anyone is thinking. At all. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So he says, as the judge, he's in the position of the judge, but I say to you, and now he's going to explain something to them. Now remember what the purpose for 5, 6, and 7 is. The purpose of 5, 6, and 7, again, is the call to repentance. Very important. Jesus is not, in other words, primarily commentating on divorce here. It's not His primary purpose. Is He commentating on it? Yes. Briefly. Is what He's saying correct and accurate and inspired? Yes. And completely. Should it be wrestled with what the intent, not intent, but what these words actually mean? Yes. What the phrases mean, what the sentence means, what, what, is the, what is the thought of the commentary? Yes, it should be wrestled with. And I hope in the result of working our way through what we're going to work through today, we'll start processing it that way. If we get the intent, the, the, the interpretation of the actual words are going to come much easier. 
and sentences and phrases. But it's interesting what Jesus does here. And I think it's very purposeful what Jesus does here. And it's striking and it's stunning and it's devastating. Let me just say this right in the get-go. What, we, what have we seen every step of the way so far? Whenever Jesus says, but I say to you, his next commentating every single time leaves 30% of the hearers condemned. Right? 40%? How about 70%? 90%? Okay, so we all agree it leaves 100% of the hearers condemned, right? We could say equally it leaves 100% of the readers condemned as well, correct? All through history. That's important. Why? Because Jesus is explaining to people they need to repent. That's His teaching here. You need to repent. Again, the divine commentary is important, but we've got to remember the intent. The intent is that people need to repent. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the grounds of sexual immorality, and then he says what he says afterwards in that commentary. The key point of the text, however, is not makes her commit adultery or commits adultery themselves at the end of 32. The key point of the text is the thing that most people try to ignore. Most commentators, most uh, writers and uh, students of the text tend to ignore or minimize. And it's in verse 32. I will read it again. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality. Now, Jim, if I may just say this, because you and I have had several conversations over the years. Hope you don't mind me singling you out on this. Because you and I are a lot in the same, same realm in this. Jim and I have talked about, about how uh, other language, you know, bringing in the Greek and Hebrew a lot, isn't really helpful. And I, generally speaking, agree with him on that. I don't think it's helpful, typically, for a pastor to come to church and talk about Greek and Hebrew. And you know why? Because you guys don't know Greek and Hebrew. And so for me to talk about Greek and Hebrew, and Greek and Hebrew words, generally speaking, is not helpful to you. And you know why it's not helpful to you? Because you know what I just teach you? You can't understand the text yourself. And you need the guy on the mountain, to tell you what it all means. And I don't think that's right. And that's why you almost never hear me talk about the Greek and Hebrew. Sometimes I'll say, well, this, this word that's used here means, and I'll go ahead and explain it, but I won't mention the Greek and Hebrew. But I'm going to this time. I very seldom do, but I will this time. I don't even remember the last time. Do you remember the last time I did that, Jim? I don't remember. It's been a long time. It is interesting what Jesus does here. Because I think the entire understanding of the text hinges on something. Again, verse 32, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality. The word, the two words we have in English in the ESV is sexual immorality. Does anybody have a different translation than that? Sexual immorality. What does yours say, Jim? Fornication. What translation is that? And ESB, in chastity, unchastity. Anybody have something else? Nobody has anything else? Okay, good. In the Greek, the word in my translation, the ESV, the, um, sexual immorality is one word, not two. 
One word, not two. It's used, I think, three times in the New Testament. That's about it. And it is basically not found outside of the, um, uh, the New Testament, like in archaeological ruins and all the archaeological digs, and they find all sorts of Greek texts that are not biblical texts, and it helps them in context to understand what words mean. Uh, this word is, they've struggled with for centuries, millennia. What does the word actually mean? The word in the Greek is porneia. Now, if you hear the word porneia, you immediately, in your mind, probably think of a word today that's used quite often, and it is what? Pornography. They didn't, the word porneia does not mean pornography, although certainly it morphed into that. We can't read pornography back into it. That would be really, really bad use of language. But it gives you an idea. The word has stuck with the sexual thing over the years, over the centuries, millennia. But the word is porneia. I find it very interesting that the, the word is the word that Jesus chose, porneia. It is intriguing to me that he chooses that word. Now, in Jesus' day, there, again, remember I said there's two major schools of thought on this text? Two major schools in Jesus' day. The one major school of thought was sexual immorality meant adultery. Physical, ongoing adultery. That's what it was, at least in the one major school, they thought it was. And most of the people, kind of, the majority of the people fell into that camp. But there was a large group of people who took a different view. And the different view was that the word porneia included, what was your translation again? Unchastity, that's an interesting term. It included pretty much anything, even beyond something simple like unchastity. It included just about anything. It was wide open to your interpretation. It could mean anything. It could mean, it could mean that, um, that she never cleans the house. Pornea, I'm going to divorce her. It could mean as simple as she burnt the toast this morning. Pornea, I'm, and you think I'm joking. I'm not. Pornea, I'm going to divorce her. So was, those type of things it could be literally anything. And I'm going to divorce my wife. By the way, women couldn't divorce their husbands. But pornea, anything, I could divorce my wife. Or pornea, she is committing sexual adultery. She is having sexual intercourse with someone who is not her spouse. I can divorce her. Those are the two groups. Jesus does something interesting here, I would argue. Because he could have chosen one side or the other. Very simply. He could have said, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the grounds of adultery. He could have said that. But he didn't. He uses the word adultery on both sides of it. But he doesn't hear. That's intriguing to me. He doesn't use that word. It's available to him. He knows the word. He used it up in verse 27 and other places there in the, in the text as well. He could have used it. He chose a different word. 
Now, some would argue, well, that was just for literary creativity. But he goes right back to adultery again. And it would make it more difficult to understand rather than clarify. He could have said, you could divorce your wife for any reason, gone with the other camp. And there would be clarity, right? In either way, there would be clarity. You can't divorce your wife except for adultery, clarity. You can't divorce, you can't divorce your wife except for any reason. <laughs> or you can divorce your wife for any reason. Clarity. But in 31 and 32 by itself, we end up with no clarity by 31 and 32 by itself. Which is why this has been argued for millennia and more. Except on the ground of sexual immorality. What do we do with that? What does that mean? Except for in the case of porneia. And by the way, just so I could, I, I just in case you don't understand, porneia, the few times we do find it used, it's used for a variety of things. A variety of, of activities, if I may use that word. But there's, where's the key to unlock the term as it's used in this text? That's the question. What is the key that unlocks it in this text? And could I just submit to you? It's not there in this text. It's not there. Not in 31, 32. Which is why this text must be absolutely and inexorably connected to the previous text. And when you connect it to the previous text, suddenly we discover once again what Jesus is doing in this text. Suddenly we understand exactly what Jesus is doing. What is he doing again? His purpose is to do what? Call them to repentance. So he says to you, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Because that's what people are saying, that they're quoting the law. Make sure you give a certificate of divorce. Well, I've given a certificate of divorce. I'm good to go. And by the way, in Jesus' day, divorce was very common. It was ha all through Jewish history. It was very, very common. It was happening all the time. And they're quoting the text that he's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 24. In verse 31 here. But in his commentary... He says, but I say to you, and when he says but, he's saying there's, you're missing a point. It makes, does that make sense? You say this, but I say as the judge, as I'm about to commentate, and the idea is when, he's com when a judge is commentating, he's commentating in the midst of judgment. Correct? So he's saying, but I say to you, in effect, every time you see, but I say to you, he's saying you're wrong about what, what I just said before. Your understanding of what I just said is incorrect. And you've been living, therefore, by an incorrect what? Standard. And if you've been living by an incorrect standard, there's only one thing left to do, and that is what? Repent. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality... What is Jesus doing? He chooses, the, he chooses the word porneia and our key to unlock what Jesus means by the word porneia is found in 27 through 30 from the message of last week. What's porneia mean? What is Jesus referring to when he says, but I say to you? 
Look at 27 through 30. You have heard it said that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. So we got the connection there, right? But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right hand, then he goes on, right eye caused you to sin, tear it out. If your right hand caused you to sin, cut it off. That type of thing. But the point of the text is 27, 28, especially 28. What's he referencing when he says, but I say to you? What he's referencing is 28. He's saying, when he uses the term porneia, sexual immorality, he's drawing a contrast between what they think. Well, my wife committed adultery if I was in the major camp. She committed adultery, so I'm going to write a certificate of, of divorce for her, so life's good. But Jesus is saying no. That's why he says the word but in the beginning of 32. He's saying no. You missed the whole point. The point is, and here is his point, if you have lusted in your heart, you've committed pornea. That lust in your heart is the very definition of pornea. That's what he's saying. You think that, in other words, he's saying to them this, you think in writing divorce, a certificate of divorce because your wife committed adultery, you think that you've kept the law and you missed the point that you're adulterers. That's what 28's about, isn't it? You missed the point that you're adulterers. And that is the very definition of porneia. It's not an activity of your flesh, of your body. It's an activity in your mind. And so what Jesus does in the text is he cuts right to the chase. And we've missed the point as we've played around with, well, should the person get divorced? Should the person not get divorced? Is it right or is it wrong? The starting point for Jesus is what? Is the starting point for Jesus, should this person or that person get divorced or not? Is that his starting point? No. His starting point is what? You've all committed adultery. That's his point. Every last one of you have committed adultery. Every last one of you have been involved in porneia. That's what he's saying to them. You think that you've met the standards of the law. And all you've done, all you've done is violated the law. Well, is there any evidence of that elsewhere in the Scriptures? Yes. Now, I know it's a contested passage. But in John, we find people dragging I believe it's the Pharisees dragging this, this, this woman before him and saying she has done what? Committed adultery and the law says she should be what? Stoned. And what does Jesus say? He who hasn't sinned, throw the first stone, cast the first stone. And what do you think he's talking about? You think he's talking about generic sin there? No, he's not talking about generic sin there. Not at all. He's talking about porneia. You are condemning her. Which one of you is pure in light of her? Which one of you is absolutely pure? Which one of you hasn't in your heart done the exact same thing? 
See, if he had just been going generic sin, their response could very easily have been, well, but we, go, we take sacrifices to the, to, the, to the temple all the time. But it's not even in their mind about this as a violation of the law. You who haven't sinned, cast the first stone. And they all do what? They all leave. All those that condemned her left, why'd they leave? Because they were condemned. The same idea. Jesus' intent here is not primarily to explain to the hearer, well, this is where divorce is okay and this is where it's not okay. That's not his point. Is he commentating on the law? Yes! But his focus is to do what? To remind people that they have done pornea. They have committed sexual immorality. They've committed unchastity. They've committed fornication in their heart. And that is roundly condemned by Jesus. That's exactly what he's driving towards. In context, it starts out, it was also said, he's connecting 27 to 30 through to 30 and 31. He's saying, all those of you that already are condemned in 27 through 30, and you know you are, every one of you, you think you get a pass because you wrote a certificate. And you don't. Because in so doing, you judged everyone but yourself. In this case, you judged your wife. You didn't judge yourself. You held yourself to a different standard than you held your wife. You're condemned. You need to repent. Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, could I just submit to you that that's a little more important, isn't it? Just a little bit more important than grappling with if it's right to get a divorce or not. You know, I've, had, I've literally had hundreds of people come to me and, and question me and ask me, can I get a divorce or can't I? Here's my situation. Can I divorce my spouse or can't I? And I hate to say this, but for the longest time, I was in a position where I was trying to help them understand whether they can or not. When really, where should I have been? What should I have been talking about? Their own heart. Shouldn't I have? Is the call not to everyone to repent and believe because the kingdom of heaven is at hand? Is that not the call? Instead, what do we do? We spend our time trying to figure out, well, should I or shouldn't I? Should I or shouldn't I? What does the law say? Instead of recognizing, no, the reality is I am an absolute and horrific violator of the law. That's why I say to people all the time, and I say to myself all the time, this is really important, when I have people come to me and they're so upset about something, somebody did blank to me and they're so fired up about it. I mean, the person is totally jacked up about it. And sometimes I get that way as well. But I'll say to the person, I hear you. And it sounds like what the person did was really, really wrong. It really does sound that way to me. Now, I haven't heard their side of the story, but it sounds like what they did was really wrong. It was sinful. And I see you're really upset about it. 
And the Bible tells us we should be upset about sin, shouldn't we? Shouldn't we? We absolutely should be about, upset about sin because it's a violation of the character of God. But I look at him and I find myself saying lately, in the last 10 years or so, I find myself saying, I see you're really upset about this, but let me ask you a quick question. And what I'm trying to get to when I ask him this next question is to get him closer to this. And it's this. I ask them, I see you're upset about, your sin, about this person's sin. Can I ask you, I see how upset you are. It's evident. It's evident in your face. It's evident in your reaction. It's evident in your voice, right? It's evident maybe in your tears. Can I just ask you a simple question? Do you get this exercised over your own sin? More importantly, do you get more exercised over your own sin than you're currently exercised over what that person supposedly did to you? Even if it's accurate in every way. Because you know what we're doing? When we get so exercised over what somebody else did to us, and we're not more exercised over how, what we did to our Redeemer, you know what we're doing? The same thing that's going on here. These people are worked up. They want to divorce their wife. They want to write a, a certificate because it says write a certificate. And God says, wait a second, stop. <laughs> Jesus says, wait. You're missing the whole point. You have committed pornea, sexual immorality. You have done this repeatedly, characteristically, you have done this. And all you're thinking about and all you're dwelling upon is that person, that other person is condemned. That's all you're thinking about. Now maybe the person did something really bad. Maybe. And maybe we need to wrestle with all that stuff. But the call of Jesus is not ever everyone needs to repent but you. You realize that? That's not the call. And the call of Scripture certainly is not you need to make sure everybody else repents but you. That's not there, is it? The emphasis of the Scriptures is what? Repent, or to add a word, if I may take liberties, you repent, or me, I need to repent. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is not... Everyone else does. But we live our lives that way, don't we? And that's exactly the way they were in Jesus' day while he preached this, this message. Because that's exactly what's happening. That's why he keeps saying over and over again, you've heard it said. And, and why does he say that? Because what are the people doing? They're trying to chase after what they heard said. Right? They're trying to chase after an obedience to the law. Are they not? exactly what they're trying to do, but in chasing after the obedience to the law, they're missing the whole intent of the law. The intent of the law was what? To point to Jesus and to, Tom, you've, just, you've said it so many times, I'll ask you to say it again. The purpose for the law was what? How would you, how would you describe it? The purpose for the law for the Old Testament was what? To be a, a schoolmaster, right? Our inadequacy, our inability, right? We are unable to obey the law. Absolutely correct. That's the purpose for the law. Now, that's the intent of the law. That's the goal of the law. Should the people try to follow it? Well, yeah. And as they try to follow it, what happens? 
they discover that they can't and it shows them they're doomed, right? And it causes them to cry out for mercy and for a redeemer. But what happens instead is the people look to the law and then they fudge the law and they fudge on the law and fudge on the law a little bit more and they twist it and turn it and, and, and reshape it so that they can seemingly keep and then they ignore the parts of the law they don't want to look at but they miss the entire intent of the law and so you don't find in jesus day do you find the people in general saying we need a redeemer and jesus is the redeemer is that what you find no he came unto his own and what his own did not receive him right he was the promised redeemer he was the fulfiller of the law he was what he was who the law pointed toward the entire time, and they did not receive the fulfillment of the law. They rejected it. They despised and rejected him, and they eventually murdered him. Did they not? They totally missed the intent of the law. And that's exactly what Jesus is addressing here. He's not addressing the nuts and bolts, although he's commentating on the nuts and bolts. He's not addressing his purpose. is not merely to address the nuts and bolts of the law. The purpose is to show them they need him. That's what they need. Which is why after chapter 7, you will find him doing what? Finally bringing the good news of the good news. The bad news is what? In this text, the bad news is they have thought they kept the law because they filled out certificates of divorce. Or perhaps they didn't divorce, so therefore they still kept the law, right? But did they keep the law? Did they ever keep the law? No. They did not. Not at all. And again, this whole discussion on divorce is just an example of the absolute failure of humans to keep the law. So what Jesus is doing is he's saying to the hearer and to the reader, you have failed to keep the law. You have failed every step of the way. You need to repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. You need to repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, let me just say this real quickly. Assuming for a second that we're all believers, and that would be an assumption because I can't judge your hearts, right? I certainly can't judge anybody that's online because I don't, Many of them I don't even know. Whether we're believers or we are not, the call is the same, is it not? Isn't it? The call is the same. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If I am a believer in Jesus Christ, my sin, my porneia, for example, in this text, my sin should be so evident to me that I find myself repenting. Why? Because, friends, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Isn't it? What's the timetable for the return? Anytime. And the kingdom is not just a future thing, is it? It's a current thing as well. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. We are, if we are believers, we are no longer of the kingdom of darkness, right? 
Repent of what then? Acting and living and thinking as if we are what? In the kingdom of darkness still. Repent of loving the things that are of a treasonous kingdom. Repent of actually being treasonous towards our king and our kingdom. And for a believer, that should grieve us. But you know what? We find ourselves doing it, don't we? We do, don't we? All the time. Repent. That's the call of the text. And if we're not a believer, if we've never received Christ as our Savior, if our sins have not been atoned for, and we've not, we've not been adopted as sons, we've not been made alive, the call is the same. Repent. Why? Because the kingdom of, of heaven is at hand. And for, especially for an unbeliever, we must remember that that statement for the kingdom of heaven is at hand in 417 means something that's dramatic. It means that that offer of the kingdom of heaven will not always be there. Remember the story of Noah? Remember? The call to repentance was there for 120 years. And then one day, what happened? The door of the ark closed. And it's like the picture of the kingdom of heaven sailed away. Didn't it? Sailed away. And the rain fell. And everyone else was doomed. You, you sense the urgency in Jesus' statement in 417? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. But that urgency isn't just for unbelievers, but for people who claim to believers, it's there in, in Hebrews, isn't it? The after today while well, it's still today. The after what? Making sure that you have a warm or soft heart versus a cold or hard heart, right? Well, how do you do that? You just womp it up? No. You repent. That's what it is. Repent. And turn to Jesus because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Because there's going to come a point in time when those who don't repent, although they claim to be believers, there's going to come a point in time once again when the door will be closed. Right? That's what Hebrews 6 talks about. There will no longer remain a sacrifice for sin. God is long-suffering. Is He not? He is long-suffering. However, he's not forever suffering. And the call is the same to repent and believe. The issue is not, we don't go to the text to find out specifically and, and, and primarily, well, can I divorce or can I not divorce? The real issue is, what do I need to repent of? And that's the corruption of the text. That's the very heart of the corruption of this entire three-chapter text. It's not about what do I need to do or what can I do or not do. It is what do I need to repent of? Because that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He's declaring the need for repentance. Let us come to him and repent. And be reminded that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen? If we sin and we do, 1 John 2, 2 says we have an advocate in Jesus. He advocates, he advocates for us before the Father. Amen? repent and believe. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. What mercy 
we receive, that he would forgive us. I'm 62 years old. It boggles my mind when I repent of my sins that at this late date, after 62 years, he still forgives me. That boggles my mind. But he's a covenant God. He's a promise-making, promise-keeping God, and he promises to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a joy it is and what a privilege it is to come to the throne of grace and confess our sin, to repent and know that he forgives us. Joy comes in the morning, but it comes via repentance. And the cleansing power of Jesus produces joy. As we come to the table, it's an opportunity for us to rejoice. Yes, if we need to confess our sins, we ought to confess. Absolutely. If we need to go and confess our sins to somebody else, absolutely go. Leave the elements and go. If they're not here, commit before the Lord to go take care of it immediately. Confess your sins before the Lord. Do not eat and drink judgment upon yourselves. That's what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 11. Even that, I'm reminded of how often I take the elements in an unworthy fashion. And could I submit to you? That's every time. Do you realize that? It's every time. He is merciful to us, isn't he? Confess our sins. And then we come from there rejoicing. I love the picture of, uh, in Pilgrim's Progress again, <coughs> of Pilgrim when he comes to Calvary and he confesses and repents and believes. And the, the backpack he's wearing, the straps that are holding him onto his back. And it's such a heavy burden he couldn't bear. It breaks off and rolls down the hill and rolls right into the tomb. And he begins to dance. He begins to uncontrollably rejoice. He is forgiven and his sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. And he can't help it but rejoice. Joy comes. So confession, it's grievous. Why? Because I've sinned against a God who loves me enough to kill his son. It's grievous. I did it again. I thought it again. I said it again. It's grievous. It ought to break our hearts. But then we cry out to God and ask Him to forgive us and He forgives us. We repent and the kingdom of heaven is at hand is no longer a warning, is it? When we repent of our sins, it is no longer a warning. It is a time of rejoicing the kingdom of heaven that I, by God's mercy and grace, am part of is at hand rejoicing. Changes everything, doesn't it? Let us repent. And then join in with rejoicing that we are forgiven. Christ's sacrifice was complete. It is finished. And God the Father was satisfied. Amen? And we've been given His righteousness. Wow. What an amazing God that we have. Let's rejoice together. And let's pray together. Let's confess together. And let's rejoice together. Let's pray. Lord, help us. Help us to recognize, <clears throat> most primarily, 
according to this text, that we are people who have sinned against a holy God. We are not God. We are sinners. We needed your grace and we need your grace. We, need your, we needed your forgiveness and we need your forgiveness. We needed your mercy and we need your mercy. We need, needed your love and we still need your love. Help us to confess our sins. Draw us to repentance. Change us. Help us to be reminded we need you every hour. And then help us to rejoice that you are a faithful, promise-keeping, promise-making and promise-keeping God. In your name I pray, amen.